Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Neha Anavaraku, and I am your host. Today, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Dr. Malini Ranganathan, who, along with Dr. David Pike and Dr. Sapna Doshi, has authored the book, Corruption Plots, Stories, Ethics, and Publics of the Late Capitalist City. Corruption Plots was published by Cornell University Press in 2023. Dr. Malini Ranganathan is an associate professor at the School of International Service at American University. Hi, Malini, and welcome to New Books Network in South Asia. I'm so excited to have you here to chat about this incredibly rich and provocative book, Corruption Plots. My biggest congratulations to you, David and Sapna. Thank you so much, Sneha. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really uh, looking forward to our conversation. But before we begin, um, I would love to get to know you a little more. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become an academic, uh, a political ecologist and a geographer in particular? There wasn't a time in my life in which I wasn't somehow interested in or otherwise immersed in world geography and world politics. Um, I feel very fortunate that way. At the age of six, for instance, I lived in what was then the Soviet Union in the capital city of Moscow. And the year was 1986. And Gorbachev was in power instituting perestroika or reforms. And the breakup of that country, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the Cold War were all imminent. And, you know, living there as a child, you could sort of in the mid 80s, you could feel these events starting to unfold, right? These were not distant events that I read about in a textbook. These were world events that were close at hand, literally, that my family and I lived through as the family of an Indian diplomat. So an awareness and perhaps even an intuitive sense of political geography and geopolitics has uh, in many ways been instilled in me for as long as I can remember. But I became academically inclined towards critical and human geography, uh, that is to say the study of people, place, and power, through my interest in the environment, and in particular the political economy of the environment, which includes questions like how resources are distributed, who constructs uh, environmental narratives about what's wrong with the environment, and who benefits and who loses from these narratives. So in my early 20s, I did some research on deforestation and charcoal making in Rajasthan. I was working for a Delhi-based NGO at the time. And the focus of this research, funded by the Swiss government, was on the Bheel tribe who live around the national forest there, Rantambore and Sawai Madhopur. Um, and as I was doing fieldwork there, it became apparent to me that you know, hegemonic and mainstream narratives and laws that alternatively romanticize or vilify Adivasis. Um, And that what is actually pro-environment in India can actually be quite anti-people. And so I simply wasn't satisfied with the NGO world and the NGO literature I read on the matter, uh, which seemed so status quo. So then I decided to go off to do a PhD in environmental studies and geography at UC Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley um, in the United States, which uh, was well known to have a strong Marxist and critical tradition, especially a political ecology tradition. 
So then the rest is history, as they say. Um, once I took courses in, in social theory, uh, in Marxist postcolonial uh, theory, development studies, political ecology, and also critical urban theory, it was like I couldn't unsee that way of thinking, right? That way of always asking uh, 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 questions, critical questions of, of the landscape, of the environment, of people, place, and power. I think one of the most life-changing books I read in um, graduate school was uh, titled The Lie of the Land, Challenging Received Wisdom on the African Environment by uh, two political ecologists called Robin Mearns and Melissa Leach. You know, and at that moment, I thought to myself, this is the kind of myth-busting, truth-speaking, envelope-pushing stuff that I dreamed of writing to at some point, right? And so, so I think that was really kind of a turning point. And so that's that's sort of how I got uh, to this 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 field discovered it uh, it was it was a journey <laughs> thank you that really helps um you know contextualize uh, the trajectory of uh, the wonderful work you've been doing uh, all these years and it's it's I, I love getting to know how people have come to where they are right now it's always such an interesting uh, part of the story um but corruption plots in particular is such a marvelous example of collaborative writing so how did you david and sapna decide to write this together how did it all come together to tell you the truth um tell you the truth, I didn't think I was ever going to write a book on corruption. Um, as you write in the introduction to our book, particularly since the end of the Cold War, um, corruption has become a kind of stick with which uh, agencies like the World Bank and the IMF uh, coerce so-called developing country governments um, and force them to liberalize, shrink the state, Right, uh, uh, you know, sort of discipline the state, right, because it's too bloated, um, and embrace market-based principles, right. So corruption always seemed to me this sort of like this outside imposed um, rubric through which to to discipline, as I was saying, uh, these poorer country governments without realizing that sort of long histories of you know, extraction and colonialism and, uh, and in ways in which, of course, the West very much has abetted in these illicit uh, flows of resources and wealth. Um, but more than that, I think corruption always seemed to be a very class-inflected discourse to me. Um, I'm sure you this is familiar to you, but the Indian urban middle class is always talking about this politician, this neta being corrupt and that babu being corrupt, right? It's like their favorite conversation. Um, and I encountered that all the time in my research on water and land politics in Bangalore throughout the late 2000s. So I kind of resisted really grabbing the corruption bull by its horns, um, but still I was pulled to studying it kicking and screaming, um, it seemed that the more I tried to avoid studying corruption, the more it appeared in my fieldwork notes, like an annoying neighbor auntie that's always in your business. You know, it's always like there, like it's, someone's always using the terms for it, right? Whether it's prashachar or ghus, uh, you know, corruption or bribes or mosa, wrongdoing and akrama, um, inami in Canada, right? So um, my, my, my friend and fellow geographer, Sapna Doshi, told me that actually the same thing was happening to her in her fieldwork dissertation and post-dissertation in Mumbai. Um, and I think why this was happening was the, was the time period, right? We were, we were both writing in, on separate contexts in India, Bangalore and Mumbai, but, but um, we were writing kind of in the lead up to and post India Against Corruption in 2011, right? And so uh, it kept cropping up because, because the kind of the air and the media waves in many ways was saturated by 
these uh, narratives coming out from Anna Hazare, Arvind Kejriwal, and the urban middle classes primarily, um, who were kind of constructing this this notion of of the uh, widespread abuse of power. And we now know, looking back, of course, that this actually very much set the stage for the coming of BJP, right? And because that same urban middle classes, those same anti-corruption folks, you know, allied themselves with Hindutva not uh, just a few years later. And so it's very fascinating to look at the conjunctural moment at at, at which these narratives became kind of more taken up, right? and and just to be sure, you know, I think in um, post-colonial contexts um, around the world, there's always this kind of alertness around around corruption, right? But partly it's it's because of the ways that development agendas worked, um, and, you know, and due to development being a long project stretching from the colonial period uh, to the post-colonial period. And so, in some senses, even in post-independent India, you know, you always heard a kind of um, uh, concern with the, the abuse of power and corruption. Um, but there was something also different in this 2011 moment, right? People were uh, using the word uh, corruption to specifically talk about, for instance, the land mafia, um, the the kind of uh, egregious abuse of government land uh, in the case of Mukesh Ambani's uh, $1 billion worth uh, Antila property in, in Mumbai, right, that overlooked slums, right, they became so iconic. And so there was something about the city, I think, that also became a staging ground for these stories and narratives about, um, uh, you know, about greed, to put it very bluntly. And it was like you couldn't separate out perceptions of the city and perceptions of corruption. They were like mutually entangled. So we started out by writing a few academic articles, just kind of comparing the political uh, context around land grabs and how uh, various activists, differently situated activists, you know, including slum activists, has started taking up this, this notion of, uh, of corruption and using it as a way to expose fraud, uh, expose illicit uh, land acquisitions or the bending of rules, Right. Um, And it so happened that as we were developing this work, 2011 to 2016, in the U.S. also, where we were both located, corruption narratives also took center stage as a political language. Right. You know, for instance, uh, corrupt Hillary and drain the swamp by Trump or even the system is rigged by, by the left, by Bernie Sanders. So they had a lot of purchase across the spectrum. But I think uh, coming back to your question about how the collaboration worked, then not only between Sapta and I, but a third person, which is David Pike, who is a scholar of film and literature at my university. And he's actually a specialist in urban culture and the underground. Um, we also, we, we, uh, we asked him to, uh, to think with us and to consider joining our uh, project because we knew that it wasn't that just that we were studying corruption as a kind of objective fact, that exists out there in the world. Like you can't just draw a box around corruption and say, huh, this is corruption and this is not corruption, right? That's what an organization like Transparency International tries to do and it makes like no sense whatsoever, right? Um, um, and so so rather we realize that, that this is a kind of storytelling practice, like a politically and morally loaded storytelling practice just like other social constructions, right? Um, and, and so we teamed up with uh, David Pike, um, who I mentioned is a specialist in the underground um, and urban culture. And he's also written about the kind of uh, spatial imaginary of the slum from European modernism uh, to 
reality. Um, and we applied for a grant, a very, very humanities-based grant from the Mellon Foundation, American Council of Learned Societies. And it was a proposal to write a book that was unconventional across the humanities and social sciences to really render and, and corruption in all its complexity, um, but also put forth a new theory that was that flied in the face of these neoliberal agencies that were using corruption in a very narrow way, right, for its own uh, macroeconomic uh, um, agendas. Um, so we won the grant and then we thought, okay, now we have to write the book. <laughs> so starting in 2018, we did some joint field work in Mumbai and Bangalore. We came back, we also viewed films and read novels together. We really tried to kind of uh, bring out these un- um, these little, little or understood aspects of how these, this morally loaded narrative can like take shape in the space of this. Um, and so that's, that's how things actually got moving. That's, that's really great. And actually a great segue for me to ask a question about the kind of research design and methods the book draws on so that we get a sense of the wide variety of, um, you know, sources of uh, corruption talk that you trace through the book. And uh, I would love for you to say a little more. You just mentioned that you were reading novels together, watching films together and did ethnography. But if you could say a little more about that, that'd be great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so as I mentioned, in 2018, um, we all three conducted uh, six weeks of field work for this book, uh, a total of 50 interviews in two cities, Mumbai um, and Bangalore, with uh, uh, various uh, types of people from slum and middle class activists to journalists, um, to uh, petitioners in land grab cases, um, and uh, to residents right, um, of middle class class uh, multi-story buildings whom we were seeing and bumping into in the hallways right and so so we used uh, the we used in all these uh, these these instantiations of, of meeting with people we kind of used the ethnographic method of follow the dot 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 so in this case we followed the scam um, so, for instance, we identified a couple of high-stakes scams that had been kind of circulating as stories in the in these respective cities for a while. You know, uh, having uh, studied uh, newspapers and reports, right? So, uh, for instance, a, a very well-known scam in Mumbai is the Adarsh uh, Towers, right? Uh, and um, so we, we 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 found the person who was most responsible for exposing the scam through right to information petitions. Um, we knew that Vikroli Park site was a major another um, another major setting for a corruption scam, especially around slum redevelopment. Um, we knew in Bangalore, the Mantri Special Economic Zone, the SEZ, on um, a kind, uh, kind of confluence of two major wetlands, Agara Belandur wetlands, and the fact that the government agencies involved had basically handed over wetland to a major real estate company. We knew that was circulating. We knew there was a major eviction of a Dalit a slum called uh, Yejipura in Bangalore. So we kind of followed these scams and we went to the sites and went to the people um, that helped to kind of expose uh, these scams. Um, and these were high profile cases. They had been written about in newspapers. But we also were looking into the more quieter behind the scenes murmurings and gossiping about corruption. And being ourselves members of the middle classes, we thought it was imperative on us, imperative to expose these kinds of more uh, under wraps uh, acts of corruption that the middle class themselves are highly complicit in, even though at the drop of a hat, they will turn around and point fingers at 
um, you know, at, at the Netas and Babus, as I was saying, or at, at some dwellers or developers, right? And so for us, it's sort of turning the spotlight, you know, on our own class folk, right? Class and caste folk in many ways. And so, um, you know, we also knew, and this was where I think a, a, a novel like Arvind Adiga's uh, Last Man in Tower is just so unflinchingly critical of middle-class hypocrisy and duplicity in India. It's such a great novel to kind of port, paint these character uh, caricatures. Um, so whether it's kind of purchasing property in black or bending all kinds of regulations, right, um, or even backbiting, wheeler dealing, um, you know, the middle class are, as I mentioned, uh, complicit in these uh, real estate uh, corruption plots. Um, and so we conducted what would be called partisan observation, right? But that, that really comes out in chapter two of the book on the so-called multi-story, multiply-storied building. And we had to tap our own networks, our own families, right? Um, which can, of course, be uh, uncomfortable, right? At, uh, because you realize, as I said, you're indicting your own class and, and caste folk um, to reveal. And we are revealing that, you know, while the middle class themselves claim to be moral custodians of the city, the so-called Ahmadmi, they are also, they are by no means so, right? Uh, respectability kind of falls apart when you actually pull pull uh, across the veils, mm-hmm. so they say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that was the the methodology in in these cities. Um, but finally, uh, we also uh, throughout the chapter Sneha, we try to bring our ethnography and participant observation uh, into conversation with novels and films. So we feature Paranjit's Kala set in Mumbai's uh, Dharavi. We feature, as I mentioned, novelist Arvind Adiga's Last Man in Tower, Rohingyan Mysteries, more historic, set during the time of uh, the emergency, A Fine Balance, which is set in emergency at Delhi. We feature Anita Nair's Chain of Custody, set at the peripheries of Bangalore in a fictional uh, urban village called Nilgubi. So uh, in addition to these uh, films that are uh, and novels that are um, you know, more circulate uh, globally um, and up among English-speaking audiences. Um, we also feature regional films like Ambarishi, which is a Kannada film, again, set the peripheries of Bangalore about a massive land grab scam. Um, we also turn to more uh, international sources like the post-colonial African novel Graceland by uh, Nigerian-American novelist Chris Abani. And we kind of want to show that what's happening in India while we delve in much deeper there is not unique in some ways because there are this this this, this there is this emotion and affect associated with uh with wrongdoing in the city in late capitalism in other contexts of the post colony as well and in the in the final instance also in the global north which is really important a kind of contribution we, we make so uh, i think through these through this um rapprochement this en- encounter between novels films and ethnography, right? We want to give a sense of the feeling, the setting, the emotion, the texture mm-hmm. uh, surrounding urban corruption stories you know, in this in this moment of, of late capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that comes through really beautifully. The, as such, the chapters are uh, layered on top of each other. And we'll talk a little more about that in a bit. But even the kinds of materials you drew on, I think they spoke to each other and in a way brought in such a um, you know, such an interestingly complex and um, provocative story of corruption in, in, in all over the world, actually. So, yeah, I think uh, major congratulations in sort of 
broadening the very idea of ethnography and uh, what that can look like. And uh, especially since this is a co-written book, um, I would love to know, like, how did the process of working across each other's materials and again, like, as you mentioned, field sites, right, and uh, research familiarities, research trajectories, approaches, how did it work in practice? I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are interested in collaborative work are often uh, mystified by what it really looks like. So an example or two would be great. I think we learned a lot. <laughs> um, I think one thing you have to <clears throat> understand about collaboration is uh, there has to be a really good reason for it, uh, so much so that the book uh, would not be the book it is or the article wouldn't be the article it is if collaboration had not happened, right? Like there, and that I always remind myself, like even though it's really hard, and it's not true that it somehow lightens the load or whatever, right? Because you're writing just as much. You're actually knitting together the writing. And so there's a lot of revision also that happens. But, th- but there has to be a reason for it to happen, right? Like this particular book with the with the combination of literary analysis, cultural analysis, and political economic analysis, right, could not have happened if someone like David hadn't joined our team, right? And so, you know, it's fascinating because, for instance, he sees things in the city that I think ethnographer or social scientists like myself or Sapna had become so used to seeing that we didn't even kind of question it, right? So in Bangalore, uh, you know, a few, few years ago, and even now, you see these kind of large blue corrugated fences everywhere, right? Like, uh, like shielding a plot of land from public view in some way because some construction is going on there. And so, you know, he became very intrigued with these blue corrugated fences and would always peer inside them to see if you can kind of get, look through the cracks. And for him, the, the fact that there was so much shielding going on, right, of these sites, like you cannot, it's like basically a fortress. You can't really see beyond them. There's some big sign usually of what who the promoters of the project are, but you can't really see inside. And of course, they're very guarded areas. And, you know, you'll see a lot of no trespassing signs or land not for sale signs, you know, in a lot of places. I think just picking up on these, 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 these signs, these symbols in the city is something that like a literary person maybe is more observant of the city and, and can see in ways that people that are more accustomed to like don't question, right? Or even like plays of shadow and light in a film scene, right? I think that's was really interesting to see it through through his eyes. I mean, so for instance, you know, he told me that the film Shole, which is a very very iconic Bollywood film. With featuring uh, Amitabh Bachchan and uh, featuring an all-star cast, uh, I didn't realize this, but the film is what's known as a dacoit western, um, sometimes also called a curry western, right? So it com- uh, combines the conventions of, of Indian dacoit films with that of the uh, spaghetti western, which is a very classic genre of a uh, film from from uh, globally, right? Um, but it also has elements of samurai cinema, right, which is Japanese and. For, for, I, I think those were the kinds of like film history that I didn't know. Um, I, 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 I love films, but I'm not like a diehard film buff in the sense of knowing every uh, detail about the history of certain film genres, you know. Um, so just learning from him that like Shole actually is really fascinating because it is a global production in some ways, mm-hmm. and it actually had global appeal. And it was it was you know, and and similarly, viewing something like that with his, you know, his conversational. Um, uh, uh, help right uh, along the film or pausing it and saying did you see that in the film did you see what hap- just happened there did you see what happened in that scene and the ability of a literary person to take one scene literally one scene of a book or write an entire chapter about it like that's something again that ethnographers don't do because again we sometimes we t- sometimes take these details for granted I think the careful ethnographer 
really good at like breaking this down, but we also kind of want to have bigger context and make sure that the politics is clearly revealed, right? We don't we, like we don't we don't go full out description at the risk of losing the politics and political economy, right? So that's where I think there's a real balance that's, that's established between the materials, right? Because like um and the humanities, they might go for full descriptive detail about, you know, about color and light and emotion and texture, right? But 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 sometimes they might lose like the political stakes of what they're describing, right? Whereas a social science text might uh, really kind of describe the political context, the history, but might not go into these more emotional, subtler aspects of symbolism, and, right? Right. And so I think that balance of working across the materials was a real learning experience. You know, I can't say we've we've arrived and learned everything there is to learn. I can't say that the experiment um, is foolproof. I think there are certainly things that are um, that are sacrificed. I think that it becomes a very complex weaving of things. And, and so, you know, is there one story that comes out of this? Probably not, right? It's part, part of it is that entanglement and, uh, of different storylines and different spaces of the city just as corruption actually has different bloodlines also. Um, so I think, I think that it was, it was a really enjoyable and, um, and, and rich learning experience. Um, but, but of course, still at the end of the day, quite an experimental product. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for that. that um, I was also taking mental notes as you were speaking, thinking of, you know, hopefully future collaborations and to keep in mind. Um, but getting... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think, I think that's what's, um, you know, the, the the whole the whole emphasis, of course, in our um, fields of interdisciplinarity and all that. I mean, I think when you, it's it's great, like in theory, right? But in actual practice, when you sit down, it, it can be quite quite challenging, and but it's also rewarding. But also, we know that even our own uh, uh, roles is as a storyteller, right? I mean, and so that's what folks in the humanities are quite quite trained to 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 study is like the practice and art of storytelling and so in some ways it makes a lot of sense but to actually put it into practice can be quite challenging yeah absolutely um but coming to this uh, phenomenal piece of storytelling <laughs> the introduction to the to this fascinating book you make an argument about the idiom of the city and the idiom of corruption being mutually constituted and you just spoke a little bit about it and uh, in the in the introduction, you argue that narratives of corruption are consequential for space and produced through space. Could you speak a little more about the central idea that drives the book about the spatiality of corruption? And why does thinking of corruption as a spatial matter, um, you know, how does it enhance our understanding of corruption and of the urban? Yeah. So our book is set in Indian cities and global cities uh, because so many corruption stories here remind us that whether it is about the building, uh, the bulldozing of a slum to make way for a luxury mall or the stealthy encroachment of wetlands and forests by an apartment builder or speculation on a piece of farmland at the periphery or money laundering through condominiums right, whether it's any of these things, talk of corruption begins and ends where the money is, right? Corruption and money, you know, it's a, it's about the money, right, at the end of the day, right? I mean, and, and the higher the stakes of, of money, the more kind of fantastical the, the corruption plot has the potential to be. Though, of course, we both know that some very, very high stakes, lucrative 
profiteering and wealth accumulation that happens in the world through illicit means is of course not called corruption right so it's sort of like when when do those moments of of you know large sums of money and high stakes deals then become exposed and become narrated as corruption and that was always a really interesting question for us right um when does it get animated and implotted that is to say sequenced um you know in a series of meaningful events as a corruption story um so all through our fieldwork um we heard and read charged stories about the nexus between government and developer uh between contractor and politician right cashing in on on rapid urbanization and the kind of potential for windfall profits um so uh so that, you know that 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 was that was clear to us that the city as i've mentioned before is a key staging ground uh for these stories um i think we really play with this term plot of course as you noted yourself um so in one sense um all the stories of of corruptions have plots right they take a bunch of events and turn them into a compelling story um so so every corruption story involves a scam or a scheme and uncovers a plot uh but because every corruption story takes place in space and time it's also about the literal plot occupied by an apartment building a skyscraper a slum it's a plot of land so this, this term was of course quite playful on our part um to be able to understand the kind of narrative and spatial dimensions of corruption so we organize uh the book along the lines of six major iconic common places which uh in literary studies is known as a, top, a topos which the plural is topoi um and so across these six topoi we tell stories and plots about corruption but also talk about how these the, these spaces provide the grounds for the invention of certain publics that want to defend these spaces or are trying to somehow usurp these spaces so the organization of the book uh follows along uh the slum the multi-story building the periphery the swampland infrastructure and the world class city and by focusing on these interrelated uh yet also distinct urban spaces uh we trace the the speciality the ethics and the imaginaries of corruption talk uh, across the city mm-hmm. yeah and in the first chapter on slums you show how corruption is implotted through spectral and spectacular ways what i found really interesting was how creating a spectacle out of allegations of corruption became an important political strategy for anti-corruption crusaders like yole that you mentioned in the in the chapter um you argue further that the anti-corruption discourse emerging from the slum is fundamentally critical of structural inequality in the city um in which corruption is not considered to be anomalous but constitutive of casteism corporatism and capitalism could you elaborate on these points a little bit perhaps with an example or two yeah absolutely um so um i think that that exactly as you said the space of the slum um is really key because here it was here we found that more kind of structural and larger critiques um of corruption not simply as kind of anomalous or happening once in a while but very much embedded in the whole social and economic hierarchy it's here in the space of slums where that kind of analysis of corruption i think most most comes out and uh, we saw for instance films like paranjit kala 
um, a, a very beautiful example of how uh, the critique against corruption cannot be uh, separated from the critique uh, against casteism. And uh, he plays with motifs of light and dark in a really fascinating way in this film because, um, for instance, Kala, who is an intrepid slumlord, uh, who uh, is assumed to be from the different symbolisms in the slum, uh, for instance, uh, portraits of Buddha and Ambedkar, but also literature uh, from Periyar. It's considered to be a Dalit, and he is an insurgent leader that kind of leads this struggle against a rapacious politician called Haridada, who we come to understand is a Chitpawan Brahmin. So Haridada always is seen dressed in white and to sort of perform his Brahminical piety and purity. Um, and this notion of outward purity, right? This purity politics. Um, also, there's definitely plays on the current moment of Hindutva neoliberalism in India because he wants to, um, he's working with a developer to uh, to redevelop the slum, which is basically Dharabi, where Kala is a slum lord. Um, meanwhile, Kala is always dressed in black. And of course, the, the term is also a play on the, his name is also a play on the Hindi word for black. Um, but also a Nick Tamil nickname, and uh, and so um, and so, but but so the, the space of the slum is always seen to be impure. Of course, there's long-term associations with with untouchability and and spatial distancing, right? But it's really that so-called darkened space that is morally much more uh, much more up, uh, upright um, and uh, is really is really kind of fighting struggles for justice versus the so-called the actual corruption, right, which is which is cloaked in this veneer of Hindu piety and and sort of purity of this kind of whiteness and purity politics, and so you know there's there's so many so much symbolism in that film and so much indictment indictment of uh, of Brahmanism and the ways in which it actually uh, is is uh, uh, basically hoards wealth in the city, and um, even though it it sort of presents itself as morally up, upright and pure, and I think that's a great example of a of a fictional production, but that also uses very real life characters, situations, context to, as I said, uh, launch this structural critique of corruption as also working together with capitalism, neoliberalism, corporatism, and casteism, as you said. In our own field work, um, in 2018, we were taken on a scam tour by an anti-corruption and anti-eviction activist who we talk about in the book, uh, Simpreet Singh. And Simpreet's organization, Ghar Bachao, Ghar Banao Andalan, or the movement to save homes, make, make homes, uh, has been fighting what uh, it sees as the corruption fundamental to neoliberal urban development in Mumbai. Uh, and in particular, the, 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 the institution of the Slum Rehabilitation Scheme, or SRS. So Simpreet, on one morning in 2018, January 2018, Simpreet Singh had brought Sapna, David, and I to uh, Vikroli Park site slum in northeast Mumbai. And as we enter the slum, a giant poster depicting the far-right uh, late populist icon Bal Thakare flanks the entrance of the slum. And so we noticed that as we were walking in, you know, to the slum, because uh, clearly there's a lot of um, populism, Shusena populism that has actually also uh, infiltrated spaces of the slum. Um, and, um, you know, we have to we have to kind of keep that in mind as well when we understand the you know political arrangements in slums. Um, so Simpreet introduces us to 
another activist and anti-corruption crusader, Sandeep Yole, who has lived in the slum for, for decades. And we follow Sandeep up this narrow staircase to a second story, Basti, or slum office, uh, where he unlocks the door to what can only be described as a hoarder's paradise. So we see, we turn around, we're just completely amazed by what we see because they are, the the office is completely cluttered with, with uh, old cardboard boxes, old electronics, books piled higher from floor to ceiling on everything from constitutional law to cooking. Um, there's furniture that's sort of toppled all over the place. Uh, and so we wonder what, what kind of office is this? And so uh, he clears space for us to sit in. So we sit in the middle um, on some chairs and we're still looking around. And anyway, then, then he begins his particular story. And over the course of listening to Sandeep Yole's fantastical plot, we come to understand that the role of this mess in his office is to camouflage cell phone cameras, to hide cameras that, that you know, are, are um, secretly filming what's going on in this office. So we come to learn that Sandeep Yole has been working round the clock and tires, tirelessly through right to information petitions um, to, to expose what he sees as the duplicity and forgery surrounding the alleged consent of Vikroli Park site slum dwellers to a massive redevelopment project undertaken by Omkar developers. So uh, Yoli unearthed the developers' underworld connections to crime rackets. um, And he said to us, uh, you know, we pulled out information about Omkar's frauds, underworld connections and illegal activities from every website we could find. What is his financial capacity, his construction quality? Has he actually rehabilitated people? We found out these things on all dimensions. And he said to us in Hindi. So, um, but but all of this activism and all the sensitization still wasn't listened to by the powers that be, right? And so it was almost like he felt like he was talking to a wall and, and the government wasn't responding to any of his concerns about the this developer who was trying to redevelop the slum uh, uh, criminal and, and connections and corruption. So um, he basically staged his own sting operation. And what he did is when the developers had gotten wind of his um, trying to expose their nefarious activities, they basically tried to buy him off with a large bribe. And so he said, okay, come talk to me about this bribe in my office. We can discuss. That's what his version of the story is. So what he had done is he has hid, hid, hidden these cell phone cameras in these pencil boxes where he'd cut out holes and he'd put, placed them all around his messy office so nobody could tell what they were. And um, then he proceeded to invite the developer to his office. Indeed, the, de- indeed, the developer produced sacks full of cash um, that um, amounted to, uh, you know, some one crore rupees. And in fact, it was part of a larger bribe that they had offered him, right, um, to around 11 crore rupees that they had promised him. And he, he, he recorded this and full footage he put on YouTube. So you can actually, if you, if you Google on YouTube, if you Google, Google Sandeep Yole, the Crowley Park site, you can see this grainy image of, this, of the developer counting out these wads of rupees. Uh, presenting to him. So Sandeep referred to it in the media as a sting operation designed to, quote, expose the illegality, fraud, forgery, and criminal activities carried out by the builder. He organized a protest denouncing the Brashachar of the SRA, which is a summary habilitation authority, and the selling of Mumbai to greedy developers, and the, basically the connivance or the nexus at a larger structural scale that always happens 
between uh, government agency, the SRA, and developer. And, and he had to use the spectacle, the sting operation, to, to launch this critique of what kind of goes on as business as usual in, in, in Mumbai. Now, what's really fascinating is we couldn't actually tell if what the whole story, even the YouTube expose was fact or fiction. Because the developer, for their part, claimed, no, we had come to his office to offer him money that he could disburse to all the slum dwellers in the slum that were, that we had temporarily moved to a new housing accommodation so that we could redevelop the slum. So they completely denied allegations of the uh, of the bribe. Meanwhile, his story was that no, this was an outright blatant naked bribe. Um, and so for, for us, I think this was where like fact and fiction began to blend and like this was so fantastical. But we knew from Sandeep's story, that he had to he had to launch this kind of spectacle, uh, the spectacularized version through a sting operation through expose through the media to actually convince people that something nefarious was going on here. And and so that's why I think the space of the slum, um, you know, is so important for kind of um, launching these 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 more publicized um, uh, accounts of corruption and uh, and also these accounts that, that show that this is not just a one-off activity, but this is part of the system of what keeps the poor poor and how wealth is always siphoned off, right, by the powers that be, by a nexus of state and private actors. And I think that's so important to pay attention to how slum dwellers tell the, tell the story of corruption, right? It's corruption as the system, not corruption of the system. Like the, the system itself is corrupt, right? rather than a deviation of capitalism that somehow one can write, mm-hmm. right? Uh, um, the whole system itself is corrupt and, and indelibly bound up with, with class and, and, and caste as well. Right, absolutely. And, you know, from there, you take us to a very different um, site, which is the um, a key icon of a respectable middle-class way of life, the multi-story apartment building, and we see such a different, uh, I guess, narrative around corruption. And as we were discussing earlier, in which sort of middle class and upper caste folks sort of distance themselves um, from the I- idea of corruption or their complicity in corruption, right? So I would love for you to speak about the kinds of tensions and contradictions within the middle class anti-corruption positionalities and mobilizations. And what were some of the things that you came across during your research um, that really surprised you? Yeah, so um, as mentioned earlier, I think that the middle class in India, the urban middle class, uh, view themselves as kind of moral custodians, right? Um, They are the Ahmadmi, they are the people who are working hard and through merit, of course, we know that is a very casteist narrative, right? through merit and hard work have gotten where they've gotten and they have to always fend off the rapacious uh, politicians, um, the, 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 you know, the, the moneyed, while on the other hand, you know, also kind of making sure that the poor, the caste oppressed poor don't take over the levers of political power. And so there's always a way kind of to, to denigrate uh, the, the, the one side of the class spectrum while also being extremely, suspicious and um and you know kind of uh, hateful of the 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 super rich and so that's typically what the middle class kind of see themselves as but, but when you look deeper you really see that um the the middle class are are also themselves quite implicated in various forms of rule bending 
uh, which they kind of chalk up to, oh, everybody does it. That's why we also do it kind of thing, which is really fascinating. So so I think it's, as I said earlier, you know, it's really these, um, some of these novels, I think, that really delight in revealing the hypocrisy of these middle-class caricatures. Um, and, um, you know, we see, for instance, Arvind Adiga's Last Man in Tower, how there is one morally upright uh retired school teacher in this building, this older building, multi-story building, where you have this kind of um, genteel kind of middle class that's living out their lives, uh, right, in, in their various uh, modes of, of purity and piety and diligence and merit. But then all the neighbors start to get very intrigued and interested in the money-making potential of selling out to a developer, but except for this old school teacher. And you see one by one the kind of inner workings, right, the innards of these middle-class residents who are basically corrupt to the core and and morally depraved to the core. Um, And so so I think... um, you know, these kinds of productions uh, give us a sense of, of like, let's do a truth check here, right? And see what is actually happening with this class position. Um, we also see in some of these, uh, some of these fictional production about what we call the, the one man army, right? The, the sort of righteous person who's uh, fighting um, through right to information act, uh, petitions, right? The, these they're taking on the kind of system, and and so we see that kind of caricature also in the in the case of the middle class. Um, but overall, what we're trying to show, what we're trying to argue, is that despite this performance of respectability, um, the middle class behaviors are actually not that different from the very politicians or slum dwellers that they like to critique and criticize so much. And in fact, uh, corruption is this class-inflected uh, discourse, right, where, where how you see it often depends upon your class positionality but um, in, 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 and class positionality, of course, and, and other axes of difference. But all in all, it's, it's, a, it's a much more um, shared across the behavior spectrum than, than a lot of us in more privileged are willing to admit. Yeah, I mean, I was um, actually thinking of the kinds of conversations I had with um, middle class and elite interlocutors in Hyderabad when I was studying uh, traffic uh, rules, road safety and driving culture. And one thing that kept coming up was how differently um, the auto rickshaw drivers, cab drivers and driver workers I spoke to spoke about bribing and bribery at the uh, regional transport authority offices and how differently middle and upper class public spoke about it, right? So um, very often engaging a broker became one way of outsourcing corruption or having a certain sort of buffering and a distance from... Right. Yeah, so it was always... Um, and like in, in the book that I'm working on, I keep using this word outsourcing corruption because it also has that connotation of, you know, the outsourcing um, sector of, or like the outsourcing being such a part of the everyday language in the IT uh, sector in Hyderabad. But I love that. Yeah, I love that. That's brilliant. And also, uh, yeah. Yeah, but what was interesting is that they're so aware of it, right? Like the middle class uh, people that I spoke with, they're extremely aware of the fact that this is what they're doing, but the impunity with which it continues to um, to manifest and then also 
uh, culminate in an anti-corruption discourse is exactly as you as you outlined in in this chapter. It's full of it's rife with these contradictions um, and um, yeah, and just uh, I guess hypocrisy is that to be to be very blunt, yeah. No, that's brilliant. I, I I absolutely love the notion of of the middle class outsourcing corruption because it exactly gets at the point that we're trying to make, which is that they kind of absolve themselves of this this uh, you know this act this action that is beneath them supposedly, while very much abetting you know and puppeteering it from above, and uh, that distance that they're trying to maintain and that illusion while also being very complicit in the system, I think is just really, really fascinating. Um, and it's part of actually what, it, I think what hasn't been identified so much in the literature on class in urban India is how this is actually constitute, constitutive of class formation and class identity in India, right? Um, but we don't actually talk about that. And uh, and so, um, you know, even even that what I was saying earlier, the discourse of being meritorious and, and getting where you're getting because it's of your hard work, right? It doesn't actually... Uh, reveal at all the ways in which your family might have gotten favors over time, right? You might have gotten your foot in the door because of um, some sort of connection, right? And so actually what what actually is merit uh, might actually be full of compromised ethics, but it's something that as a class grouping, there's a performance of merit and performance of righteousness that is at odds with the outsourcing right of that of what's actually um illicit behavior yeah and you know you uh, and this is a bit of a tangent but because you also mentioned it in the uh, um, prelude to the book um, which is something i've also been thinking about a lot is how as researchers our class and caste position enables this kind of lucid studying up or down as we wish right and a certain kind of ease of moving across different sites purely uh, enabled by networks of like so much caste privilege right and the fact that um, I keep thinking about this in my own work but the fact that I could uh, hang out with auto rickshaw drivers cab drivers but also studying and like you know sitting in on meetings with uh, IPS officers uh, sitting in a meeting with with the chief minister like the kind of ease with which you could go either way um, is is uh, comes back to this question of how much of say urban ethnography is constituted by caste even though we don't quite talk about it in a methodological sense so i think that there's uh, so much uncovering and uh, discovering to do on that front um, from yeah um, so it was really nice to also read uh, i just wanted to give a shout out to the to the uh, not just uh, yeah yeah the preface exactly i was struggling <laughs> But the preface was very it was um it was a very honest and uh, i think thoughtful um way to begin this book uh, which has uh, so much, so many interesting things to say about corruption caste and the city um but thank you thank you yeah we actually worked really hard on that and it is quite um struggle to figure out how to do the positionality statement in an authentic way and ultimately i think um especially if the, uh, your positionality is really key to the analytics that you have in your your book and the methodology uh, and which spaces you have access to, then it's it kind of behooves you to really be transparent about it. And I think, um, you know, as South Asians, the more that we kind of reckon and confront this, the more it becomes possible to really write incisive uh, critiques, right, of, of uh, dominant caste and dominant class positionalities, right, in a way that's not just uh, gazing at the other or gazing at... at uh, 
oppressed groups and i think this is so important that scholarship is doing this yeah absolutely um coming back to the book well the chapter on the urban periphery was also so fascinating i really enjoyed um how the wild west frontier idea of the periphery was complicated and complemented with stories of marginality and vernacularity um could you say a little bit about how and why thinking through outlaw publics at the periphery of the city furthers our understandings of everyday state in late capitalism i think more than any other space of the city at the periphery uh at you know at this kind of frontier literal and metaphorical frontier of capitalism right is where you see the most naked display of violence and i think we need to you know here as we say in the book right the gloves have come off right so whereas in the middle class building the multi story building you have this kind of veneer of respectability the periphery like the 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 there's a much more naked display of violence and of a kind of transgression of law and respectability and um ethics and we and the reason why um we think with the periphery as a site through which to plot and understand stories about land uh, housing is because we kept hearing references especially in places like bangalore about the land mafia right and it was really at the periphery where where uh, this figure this uh, mysterious figure of the land mafia kept coming up over and over again um and there are sort of these state like but also non state uh amalgams of developers politicians brokers intermediaries right that that use use both political influence but also muscle power like literally muscle power to get the job done um and and but 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 then so what does this tell us right about corruption everywhere in some senses because it's because it's that much more naked what we wanted to stress is that it actually brings into view the state like what is the state really right uh and it shows what you know barbara harris white has called a shadow state right that part of the state that actually is more illiberal right is much more arm twisting violent um and engages in these dubiously ethical and dubiously legal actions actually always undergirds what you see as the more formal sarkar right the more formal like paper pushing um you know sort of that person who sits at the desk and seems like oh you have to get everything stamped and everything approved right underneath that is just a much more shadow state and so the periphery i think makes visible that shadow state right and so that's why it's really key um to go to the site of the periphery and here we saw some some uh, terrific scenes from like a kannada film like ambarishi where the opening scene is very much like a train heist in a western where you have this upright so called upright middle class person rti activist driving in a car and suddenly and you can see the setting right there these dirt roads and these empty plots of land where weeds are growing and typically low rise plotted uh, houses that use typical of revenue layouts on the urban periphery in bangalore i don't know what they're called in hyderabad but in bangalore they call revenue layout because revenue is the agricultural term for land revenue land so these agricultural plots of land are turned into uh, residential plots they're called but they're not authorized they don't, they don't have uh, infrastructure roads so they're called revenue layouts um so you see them all along and then suddenly his car is stopped by a jeep 
just like trains were um train heists were done you know by by gangsters in the in the western um of course with all the racialized tropes that were there in the in the western but uh, these these are uh, these are rowdy sheeters they're gundas who are who uh, you know have um kind of weapons like a knife or whatever and they are there to basically silence this middle class activist because he's exposing the land grab of a uh, politician a gauda politician which are the middle middle landed castes in india in bangalore so uh, these, these the, again, it, you know, just like a film like Sholay draws on these global film genres, right? Uh, but also indigenizes it to talk about, um, you know, the, the particular forms of criminality and dichotomy in rural India. I think this is drawing on some some tropes, fantastical uh, plot lines, uh, magical plot lines drawn from um, Canada mythology, but also the Western of like the way in which the heist happens, and so so it's very. Um, it's a very memorable scene of the film, and again, I think it really brings into view the the illiberalism of the of the state and the nature of uh, land deals that can be quite violent, in which the state is quite complicit. Um, it also shows the everyday nature of that violence, right? It's not it's it often it often goes in happens in ways that that uh, that people don't even blink at um, because they're just part of the storytelling and the folklore of the periphery. As such, and so we kind of uh, also wanted to bring into view, the, you know, the fact that ordinary people will make their homes and their lives uh, in these unauthorized settlements, in these informal settlements, favelas or barrios, if you if you use the Latin American term, at the outskirts of cities, right, and through these everyday negotiations with the state over land, you know, over over deals made um to to realize um that's also how the periphery kind of gets made and that's how the city is actually being made at its peripheries right and both the spectacular uh, instantiations of the the shadow state as well as the kind of everyday more mundane illegal and extra legal maneuvers mm-hmm. yeah thank you that was um, very interesting um all of this and again like provides i think a much needed a refreshing sort of perspective on uh, these peripheries, which, uh, as you rightly said, they, they, they are the site of a lot of action right now in places like Hyderabad, Bangalore, Delhi, Mumbai. So, yeah. Um, in the chapter on infrastructure, you study what you call biopolitical publics that are afforded by life-providing circulatory urban infrastructures and the consequences of corruption as it manifests in lethal- lethality and fatality, say water contamination, collapse of bridges, sewer blockages, etc. So how does corruption talk circulate in the realm of infrastructure, its breakdown, its failure, and I guess its um, anticipation and hope? Yeah, infrastructure is the lifeblood of uh, any city. And more than any other space, more than any other kind of materiality, it is about the stakes of life and death, right? Um, and and whether it's the collapse of a bridge uh, or whether it's contaminated or siphoned off water, uh, whether it's the particular kinds of dehumanization and structural violence that happens uh, to Dalits because they're trying to, and they're sent down illegally so, uh, to clean manholes and manual scavenge, right? These are all ways in which infrastructure kills. And and so so for us the 
the kind of corruption stories told about infrastructure really brings into really throws into relief the life and death stakes. So biopolitics, right, is is about the politics of maintaining life, or necropolitics, right, the politics of taking life. Um, and 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 so you know, uh, I think I think infrastructure has this this sort of high stakes associated with it um, that we wanted to really talk about, especially at, at particular punctuated moments. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Hindi film. I don't think it really did very well in the box office. Uh, it's called Madari, and it's it literally translates to puppeteer or, or street street performer. Yeah, it has. Uh, it's 20, it was made in twenty sixteen. It has uh, one of my favorite actors, Irfan Khan, uh, as the. And it's it's uh it's very tragic because what happens is that Irfan Khan's son, small son, um, who dies um, when a bridge collapses. Um, and it actually was inspired by the 2011 collapse during heavy rains of an overhead metro bridge uh, under construction on the Andheri Kurla Road leading to Mumbai, the Mumbai airport. So it takes this fatality, right? So again, politics of life and death, and um, it becomes then an obsession for uh, Irfan Khan's character to show that this was not just an accident. Right, this was actually due to corruption. This was due to the contractor taking money and not building a sound bridge. Um, and so, in many ways, again, he also seeks to spectacularize. Right. So part part of us using um, you know particular corruption um, plots and spaces is not to say that you know spectacularization only happens in the space of the slum, but it actually happens elsewhere as well. Right. So in this particular case, right, he he makes a spectacle out of the this very uh, grave bridge uh, road tragedy and uh, you know what he does is he pursues the politicians who he thinks is uh, responsible for uh, the death of his son and for the corruption throughout the whole movie um, and it's just it's it's a it's, it's a very interestingly uh, done done film um, you know at one point the CBI investigator who's who's uh, put in charge of investigating the bridge collapse says you know is this calamity or corruption right he asks and and uh, and and it's 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 well it's well done in the dialogue. It's in the dialogue because again, I think that that uh, it shows that you know we're, we're, when it comes to these large infrastructure projects, um, it can be often written off as an act of God rather than an act of greed. Um, but I that the, his whole point is to reveal that actually no, this is an act of greed that took my son's life. Um, so so I think that so we brought that into conversation with some of the other infrastructure. Um, corruption that we were had, had read about and, and um, studied. Um, you also have much more kind of mundane forms of infrastructure corruption in bribing the valve man who's going to release water to your neighborhood. Um, you know, in, in these kinds of more lower stakes deals. So just like the periphery has both the spectacular scale of violence and land mafias and land gra- grabs, but also the more mundane everyday forms of. Of making the periphery through unauthorized layouts. Again, in infrastructure, you have spectacular high stakes deals that that are uh, are more mortal and fatal. And also, you have the more everyday forms of infrastructure corruption and wheeler dealing that we observed. So we kind of tried to bring both of those into view um, with our with our uh, with that that particular chapter. And uh, I must admit that I, I 
well, this morning I was working on a chapter on potholes and uh, in Hyderabad and I was citing this chapter quite a, quite a bit. And in fact, I was bookmarking uh, that I need to watch Madari because one of the recurring things that I kept hearing was that every bump on the road is a reminder of state corruption, right? And how yeah, state corruption really manifests nice. actually in spinal injuries and in, uh, in uh, people skidding off their bikes and falling on the road. So, in fact, like one of my interlocutors very directly asked me this question, who do we blame? Do we blame the roads or do we blame the rivers or do we blame politicians or do we blame the government, right? So, like this, uh, the circulation of blame too, much like the circulation of life uh, via these infrastructures is, is uh, pretty interesting to plot and uh, track. So, yeah, I just wanted to say thank you for writing this chapter because it suddenly you know, has given me the language to kind of um, explain and think through a lot of the um, corruption talk that I was seeing with regards to uh, bumpy roads. Um, no, that, that's wonderful to hear. I, I absolutely think that that quote is such a great quote. Uh, Every pothole reminds of corruption because, in fact, it's a very material manifestation of the siphoning off of money that the contractor should have put into uh, metalling the road, right? Putting those layers um, that then, of course, are eaten off and by by torrential monsoonal rains um, that, that eat away at the road. But if the metalling is not done properly, then one ra- one rain, monsoon rain, can just finish the road, right? And of course, lead to all these fatal accidents. Um, not to mention health issues. Um, and, and of course, motorbikes are most uh, vulnerable, right? Because they can just turn over, flip over with a with a pothole. And that's what I'm saying. Like, like sometimes it can be quite mundane, like a pothole, but the stakes are nothing short of life and death. And I think that's that's what I think corruption in infrastructure uh, most most reveals that these this is not just idle gossip about this one taking a bribe and that one taking a bribe, but these stakes are quite high. And that's why people care. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, again, like as you put it, it's just something as banal as a pothole can itself generate so much conversation around bribery and corruption on an everyday basis, right? Like, and it's um, when one starts paying attention to that, it, it's actually quite revealing of the kinds of sharp critiques people make every single day as they're just doing something as uh, as they are experiencing uh, these infrastructures um, in these cities, yeah. Um, well, in the conclusion, you sort of talk a little bit about corruption in the global north and also in the final chapter on the world-class city, and you draw on the narratives around uh, shell company and money laundered skyscrapers in Manhattan and London. So what does the book tell us about corruption as the in these ostensibly clean market economies of the US and Europe? Yeah, that's one thing we really wanted to do in this book is not just paint um, corruption as something that happens in cities of the global south, right, in Indian cities or Nigerian cities or Brazilian cities, um, but rather that it's really networked through the whole capitalist global economy. Um, And um, this networking shows up both in our ethnography as well as our cinematic and literary analysis, which was really replete with these kinds of power figures, these mafia dons, puppeteering, slum evictions from Kuala Lumpur or Dubai, right? And so really the the fictional production is is great at showing that that what you think of as, as happening just in Mumbai actually has connections to places very far off from there. And uh, I myself, as Malani, do not have access to the venture capitalist who is puppeteering, um, you know, a land grab or redevelopment project from 
from um, Kuala Lumpur or Dubai, right? But somehow film gives you that window into what could be this character that we people talk about. So I think that's what's really great about film because it allows you to imagine what you might not yourself have access to, right? Um, but um, but beyond those locales, beyond those nodes of capital flows in the global south, right? so beyond India, but of course also beyond the global south, the cover of our book um, uh, features Sneha, um, the Trump Lodha Towers, which are these um, golden-hued high-rise towers uh, in the former mill lands of Lower Parel in Mumbai. Uh, and uh, they are mired in controversy. And actually, a journalist, Anjali Kamat, did a really brilliant expose on the art of the political deal, showing how the Trump organization, um, you know, has systematically basically aligned itself with some of the most notorious um, right-wing uh, politicians and also um, developers who have themselves have shady track records in India, right? And, and um, one of the ways that academia has put forward to understanding these types of deals is, is elite informality, right? These, these sort of elite ways that the, 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 the that um, people who with power and money are always bending rules, um, but then that it gets whitened. Um, and like, because these acts get, get basically chalked up to that. This is how real estate happens, real estate capitalism happens, right? Um, and so somehow there's this whitening that happens, right? Really hearkening back to uh, Paranjit's film, right? The elite activities, their piety, their, uh, their, the way they move around in the world is whitened and condoned and regularized and legalized, while those of the poor are always blackened, criminalized, right? Um, and and, and uh, in other, way, other ways persecuted. And so, so I think it's really key to kind of, while we turn the spotlight on the middle class in that chapter, to kind of turn the spotlight on the global north in this chapter and say, what are these practices that go by just simply capitalism and investment that are actually, you know, highly dubious in terms of, 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 of how they're operating and of the wheels they're greasing. And I mean, ultimately, we come down to like, you know, capitalism itself is sort of inseparable from these highly extra-legal, unauthorized move, maneuvers, right? In, in many ways, corruption lies at the heart of capitalism, right? The, the, the acquisition of property itself, as Marx said, was a highly violent and blood-soaked um, act, right? And, 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 and then because, because you have the law, it sort of somehow condones and makes it seem as a more socially constructed, as a kind of morally... Uh, right thing to do, but I think I think what we're trying to do is 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 show that many of these everyday processes in the global north um, are actually quite mired in in various nefarious activities. Um, and so one of the you know one of the, I mean this is coming out now. It's not as if that just we're exposing this, right? I mean if you think about a big real estate conglomerate like the Blackstone Group, right, owned by Stephen. And it's profited enormously during the 2008 economic crisis, right? And even the 2020 pandemic, right? We we have the world's richest getting even richer during the pandemic, right? And and you know off of pharmaceutical deals, off of who knows, you know what, even even sort of buying distressed properties. So all of this doesn't go by the name of corruption. It, that's only a much more readily available discourse in the global south because of colonialism and post-colonial development. But so what if we actually started using that language to talk about wealth hoarding and wealth accumulation, especially through urban real estate, but also through infrastructure and all kinds of 
uh, things in the global north? What does what does then that do to our analysis of power? I mean, in the United States, I think uh, until the 2016 elections, like the use of the word corruption was assiduously avoided. Right? You can use call it by any other name, call it campaign financing, call it Citizens United, call it any other thing, lobbying, but just don't call it corruption, kind of thing, right? And like I think now finally. In a place like the, like the U.S., um, you know, people are more like, willing to call a spade a spade, but I think it's also still, it's always with reference to the third world. Like, oh, you know, so-and-so is corrupt, just like a third world sort of uh, dictator or a, or a developing country. It's fa- fascinating that, and this is what my, my colleague also showed me, that like many times political narratives have to make reference to something happening in the global south in order to then make it a legitimate um, you know, happening in the United States, right? right? Like when water gets poisoned or cut off in the United States, it's like, oh, such and such city, like Flint, that's a third world city. Like they have to do that because this cannot happen in the United States. Like corruption cannot happen in the United States. Contamination cannot happen in the United States, but actually it does. So it's interesting how narrativistically speaking, you have to go circuitously via the global South to make it a real thing here. Be that as, they, as it may, I hope that our book kind of gives people the, urging to to really expose these to expose some of these but also think more deeply about then what does call get called corruption and what does not and what is the race class gender kind of dynamics of like who gets to create craft discourses and who doesn't yeah absolutely um no that that's that's really great i've um, been having similar conversations with some sociologists of corruption who um, have been saying, again, like being very skeptical of this kind of language of the exceptionalism of corruption uh, to the global south. So I'm very hopeful for, uh, I think, more interesting uh, and more accurate uh, um, scholarship on corruption uh, emerging from um, from these uh, paradigm-shifting conversations. Um, so, yeah, once again, big congratulations on the book. I really enjoyed reading it. And like I said, it's been very helpful for my own work. And I'm pretty sure it's going to resonate so much with um, so many others because there's so much going on in the book. There are so many interesting uh, points being made through the chapter. And I was telling you, Malini, before we started the interview that I really struggled to come up with, uh, to keep the question <laughs> bank to to a reasonable limit because I, there was so much more that I wanted to like chat with you about. But hopefully, uh, you know, in person at some point, uh, at some uh, academic conference or maybe in India, who knows? Um, hopefully our paths will cross. But before we close, I would love to know more about what you're working on currently and what we might hope to read by you in the near future. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, This has been a really delightful conversation and I'm just uh, so thrilled that you found uh, parts of it useful and I hope to continue the conversation with you as well on your work. Um, So in terms of what's next, I'm working on a book tentatively titled The Urbanization of Caste Power, Land, Labor, and Environmental Politics in Bengaluru. And um, this book starts off from the premise that um, especially among um, dominant groups, this notion that caste somehow is only present in rural areas and it's outdated and it's kind of a cultural phenomenon um, continues to prevail, I think, in many in many quarters. And I think it's just so obvious that um, in the urbanization process, caste continues to manifest in uh, both old and new ways. And we really have to see these material ways uh, and not just kind of sensational atrocities, right, or electoral politics, 
uh, as being the only spheres through which caste power manifests, but through very um, material spheres of land relations and even how rural caste hierarchies get re-grafted onto urban property relations um, and, and ways in which cities are segregated, but also through kind of environmental and bourgeois discourses of cleaning and greening the city, uh, also through the ways in which labor regimes were, con- contractor, you know, we talk about contractors being some of the key figures in corruption plots. Absolutely, contractors also double up as often caste lords and landlords that that are uh, quite um, exploitative of uh, lower caste groups in terms of uh, urban um, service provision, like street sweeping, uh, safai karamchari work. So this is a kind of book that I think tries to put across a theory of how we can think about caste in the urban. And I think this is joining a, a, a new wave of, of scholarly literature um, coming out of India as well as elsewhere on kind of the, the urban manifestations of caste. So that's... Um, one book I'm working on, I'm also trying to put caste in a more global context of racial capitalism and say uh, and kind of think through the, uh, the sort of political ecologies of caste, uh, race and climate. And so and, and the ways in which uh, climate vulnerability actually um, very much uh, predisposes caste oppressed groups um, through, to to harm and danger and then and, and and how we can think about this in a long-term historical way um it's sort of like some of the work on environmental racism um that has that has traced a longer history right i'm also thinking about tracing a longer history of environmental casteism so that's a, a theoretical book that i'm currently thinking through that's not rooted in in um it's not rooted solely in india um but but also takes a more like indian ocean world uh, view. So these are two projects, one one on Bangalore and one more theoretical and uh, regional that I'm hoping to work on in the next few years. But I will you will have to t- take a rain check on learning more about them since I'm also uh, I'm also learning more about them as it unfolds mostly in my brain, but sometimes on paper as well. <laughs> Both of them sound very promising and I'm uh, would be delighted to read more of uh, of your work that emerges from from the uh, from exploring these projects forward um so yeah again thank you so much for taking time out um i know i kind of uh, asked a lot of questions so i hope that was uh, okay and um you know i hope to continue these conversations at a later point take care and uh, good luck with the haze in in the east coast <laughs> thank you thank you so much neha i'm ex- extremely grateful to you 